I went down on the ground and I couldn't move. I could see, I could hear. I just couldn't move anything from my neck down. That five minute conversation had a exponential impact on my life. If you just keep doing the work, showing up and doing stuff consistently and you don't care what the outcome is going to be, you'll end up with better outcomes than you could have possibly imagined. So I go from making you know, mid to high six figures a year to having no money, empty 401k. So did he. So both of us basically went all in on that and burned the ships. The story you're telling yourself about any situation is the story that's true until you change the story. Ryan Rouse. He is the chief digital officer of High Key, a healthy alternative snacks company. And he's been leading digital growth for consumer brands for nearly a decade. But wrapped in his ultra successful career are low points that you and I can't imagine. In 2013, Ryan co-founded a company that would go on to sell for hundreds of millions of dollars. But in the end, he didn't receive a dime. In this conversation, Ryan and I talk about how he rebuilt himself after burning out as an entrepreneur, why he believes showing up every day is the key to creating outsized outcomes for yourself, and how to channel failure into learning opportunities. So without further ado, my name is Dan Russo, and this is Grow, the podcast where each week we bring on entrepreneurs, creators, and other inspiring guests to help you Grow into the best version of yourself. Ryan, how are you today? Doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Uh, I have been excited about this conversation since we started booking it. Uh, I know that we had to go through a couple reschedules because of conflicting uh, events on each of our ends, but I'm glad that we finally got the time. And um, I'm just really excited for this conversation for a multitude of reasons. Yeah, same. I'm excited for it. Yeah, awesome. Well, I want to start here, and I start here with all my guests. Um, I want to know who Ryan Rouse was at the very beginning of your story. Um, talk to me a little bit about your childhood and, and kind of the environment that um, created you as you are today. Yeah, so I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, and I would say a very, uh, really good childhood. You know, we were we were I would say probably lower middle class for the for the first half and then call it middle class. I don't know. You know, it's, it's, we never really had a ton of money. We weren't in need. We had a house over our head. We had food. We had, um, the, the uh, equipment we needed for sports. We were able to do all the sports. So for all intents and purposes, relative to most people, it was a great childhood. I have one brother. So we grew up, um, suburbs of Chicago, me and a brother, both parents were together up until I was in college. They ended up getting divorced at that point. But, uh, entire nuclear family and played a lot of sports, did a lot of things. I think that, that kids do certainly boys do played a lot of video games, played a lot of sports. Um, so yeah, it had a great childhood, you know, had a great childhood from that perspective. That's awesome. Was there one particular event in your childhood that you feel, um, like sticks with you today that was kind of like a defining moment? Um, I don't necessarily believe that, you know, there are moments that define us, but like I, there are some that stick out. Um, you know, when I think back to my own, you know, childhood and past. So I'm, I'm curious for you, what, what is that event? Yeah, I had a crazy experience in high school, actually. I was a senior in high school. Sort of a lot of layers to the 
to the story behind it, but the punchline is during a high school football game, I went to make a tackle. And when I made the tackle, I went down on the ground and I couldn't move. I could see, I could hear. I just couldn't move anything from my neck down. Oh my God. So fully conscious. Um, I remember the, my, the person who made it to me first was my best friend. And he goes to touch my head. And all of a sudden you just hear everyone scream, you know, don't touch him. Cause you could just tell, like I go down like a bag of rocks. The ambulance had taken someone off the, the sophomore game before us already. So it took the ambulance about 50 minutes to get back to the field. Oh, my God. So I'm in the middle of the field laying there for 50 minutes. I cannot move anything, but I can see and I can hear. My parents are on the field. My mom cannot contain herself. You can hear a pin drop basically for a very long time. Um, so long story short, my feelings start to come back at the hospital. But I went about an hour feeling like, I was going to be paralyzed. Yeah. It's one of those times where, where an hour felt like I could see forward 70 years. It also felt like it took a split second, you know? And so really crazy thing to experience at that time. I mean, layered on top of that is I'm the captain of my football team, which I only bring up because we put a lot of effort into off-season training. Yeah. We were good. We we, we went on to, to do, um, to, to go very far in the playoffs and, and, in Chicago. And, you know, so I went very quickly from being very grateful for the fact that I wasn't paralyzed to being feeling very sorry for myself that I couldn't play football anymore, you know, and it was one of those, you know, I had to struggle through that period of time where as a 17 year old kid who football meant a lot to me at the time, um, I couldn't play. And so it's, it's, you know, so many layers again to it, but uh, how quickly you go from just deep gratitude for like, Holy cow, I could have been paralyzed to, wishing I could play when at the end of the day, like playing football was never going to go anywhere for me. That's the reason my parents were not wanting me to play anymore, but it it, it meant a lot to me at the time. Absolutely. I I know that feeling because when I was in high school, I ran track. Um, and I know the feeling of not quite to the extent of the injury that you had, um, and potentially that deep gratitude, but it's amazing how you go from, you know, I rolled my ankle, right. And I'm out for two weeks to just deep gratitude that I wanted to get back to the sport. And then once I did get back to the sport, it was, it was just, you know, uh, you know, that kind of just disappears almost, right? Like the first week you're back and you're like, man, I'm so grateful to be back. And then you have one bad iteration. You're like, oh man, this sucks. <laughs> um, it's, it's it's the human condition, right? Like yeah. how quickly we move and, and how hard it is for us to maintain our emotions and right. and stay in check. I'm like, I, I, in theory, I should be grateful for the rest of my life that I thought for an hour I was going to be paralyzed from the neck down, which would have changed my life completely. Absolutely. In theory, I should be grateful for the rest of my life for that, but it doesn't work that way. It's just interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I think you said it best, it's fleeting, right? Um, those, yeah. you know, that, that feeling of gratitude, which I think is why a lot of people make it a practice of gratitude, right? It's like to intentionally yeah. sit down and be like, okay, I have to set time intentionally aside, whether it's in the morning, journaling, whatever that might be, to actually practice this because otherwise I'm never going to, you know, have that, you know, I might have a a wave of it every once in a while of gratitude, but otherwise I'm not going to have it consistently, which is, I think, you know, why people do that. Uh, And it's such a big thing in the self-help world. I myself don't practice gratitude nearly enough. I think it's something that I would like to change uh, in the near future, but I want to go back to, um, you know, this injury. Did they ever figure out like what it was particularly? Was it a nerve that you had, that you had hit or what was that injury? Um, It was a pinched nerve. It was, oh, a, it was a bulging disc and a pinched nerve, which uh, which 
really what, what the doctor said was this is a freak thing. The fact that you were paralyzed from it for that long was a freak thing, right? The, right. the pinched nerve isn't really. So I'll get the feeling back and then I'm totally fine. Right. So I think the challenge for me was I'm completely fine. The chances of this happening again are as small as it happening in the first place, practically zero. Right. So in my head, we're playing next week, right? I, right? I feel great. Let's go. And then the conversation, you know, now I think I'm a parent. I have three kids. I can think from my parents' perspective of I'm 5'9", 170 pounds. I am not, I do not have a future in football. No right. matter what I think at the time, right? <laughs> so why, why would you risk playing right. again? Even if there's a one, one millionth of a chance that this could happen and actually paralyze you, why would you ever play again? But yeah, it was just sort of pinched nerve in the neck. Um, caught the wrong nerve. Yeah. Stopped the feeling from the neck down. But once that eased back, I was fine. Did you end up playing again that, that next week? I did not, no. So that was the second game of the year. Mm. Um, I did not. And interestingly enough, so for the weeks after that, I'm moping around. Uh, and one of my teachers, I remember to this day, a teacher, it's game day. And I'm walking around that day feeling sorry for myself that I can't play. And it's established right. I'm not going to play again for the rest of the year. Yep. Uh, which was hard because I could physically play. Right. And my teacher pulls me aside and basically is like, get your head out of your ass. Like, like you are the captain of this team. You have people follow your lead and you walking around with your head up your ass is not helping your team. It's not helping anything, you know? And so if you're going to be a leader, you have to continue to lead even when things are not going your way. And right now you're being incredibly selfish and you're not being a leader. And that teacher, I mean, good on good on her. It was a woman and she she hit it right on the head because from that point forward, it's not that I didn't go into and out of times when I wish I could play, obviously. Right. Um, I recognize that she was absolutely right. Totally, totally. But she was dead on. Like if you, you're either a leader, you know, if you're a leader, you're leading at all times or you're yeah. not. And you have to be conscious of, of what you're putting out in the world. Absolutely. I think that's an incredible, um, you know, obviously it's a, it's a heart wrenching experience that you had to go through that um, and that you weren't able to play the rest of your senior season. Um, the way that you talk about it, I can kind of feel like there's still like, you know, there's still a little bit about that that, that bothers you. Um, but it's at least you were able to take, you know, a silver lining from it and, and sort of, you know, kind of take a lesson from it and also step up and be there um, for your team. I had a similar experience where um, that senior year of high school, I was actually out uh, with a knee injury. Doctors couldn't tell me what was wrong. It just I, every time I ran, I just knew my knee hurt. Um, I did a bunch of rehab for like two, three months over the winter's track season, came back for track uh, my senior year in the spring season, uh, was able to start running. But throughout those three months, not knowing if I would be able to run again or not that year, um, I just kind of I kept going to practice and I just kept showing up and I would do my stretches and I'd stay for 45 minutes do, and do nothing and just talk with the coach. And then my team would come back and I would just, you know, be a face and present and, you know, just kind of be like a team motivator and, you know, uh, as much of a team captain as I could be without having that title. Um, um, yeah. So I, I, I resonate with that story a lot because um, those those track stories, those sports stories, I feel like stick with, you know, stick with you if you're an athlete and you were passionate about it. Yeah, there's the, you know, what what would it have been um, <laughs> that that will always stick with you. You know, I, yeah. I'm super thankful for that teacher. You think about just the people that made a difference in your life. I wouldn't say that I would point to that teacher as having a meaningful impact on my life until that conversation right. and that five minute conversation had a exponential impact on my life so just go you know how people come in small waves and people people serve some purpose that cross your path for some purpose 
Um, I just find that type of stuff fascinating too. Cause yeah. you know, it could have easily been a teacher. Where I was like, yes, I, I gravitated to this teacher. They were a mentor of mine, my entire high school career. They wasn't, that was a teacher that I had, but, right. but for five minutes, you know, told me what I needed to hear that day in order to move on. It's funny. It, you're right. It is funny how people that we don't even necessarily think can impact our lives will. Right. Um, one minute that person's, you know, a, a potentially annoying teacher or, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, not to say anything bad about that teacher, but, you know, sure. and then the next they're they're giving you advice that's going to, you know, affect you for the rest of your life. Um, yeah. So. Um, so you're in high school. You're obviously clearly an athlete football player. What happens after that? You go to college. Where did you go to school? Went to University of Iowa. So uh, University of Iowa, I, I, a lot of people ask. Uh, I was filled with a whole bunch of Chicagoland kids because it's the same distance away from Chicago as University of Illinois is. And I say that especially because when I moved, I lived in New York for four years. And so when you live in New York City, Iowa, the entire Midwest is like, foreign to people in New York, yeah. right? You're from the Northeast. So like it's, it's all flyover anyway, but Chicago yep. at least has to them some gravitas. Iowa, people are like, why would you go to Iowa? What is Iowa? You know? <laughs> um, so I went to school, University of Iowa, loved it. I went there because my best friend, his older brother went there. We went to visit one weekend and it had this perfect, uh, had this perfect combination of beautiful campus, great people, a lot of Midwest personality to it. I ended up getting an a academic scholarship there, so that helped, but I could have gone a number of places with that, but it was just, yeah. it was a really fun time, a hidden gem of beautiful campus, great people. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, so it was fun. So I went to college at University of Iowa and then moved back to Chicago, lived in Chicago for about eight years after that. What did you major in? Finance. Finance. Awesome. So you moved back. I started engineering. I started, like a quick story, I started engineering. Uh-huh. Um, and my first semester, freshman year, so I go through high school, grade school, high school, I get two Bs my entire life. Right. And my first semester in college, I got a B, a withdrawal, a B, a C, and an F. Okay. In in my first semester. So what led um, to that? What led to that? Um, it seems like that was like a bit of an anomaly. So what led to that anomaly that first semester? Incredibly hard curriculum. So when okay. you go engineering, I imagine it's something like going pre-med. I don't know. It's intense off the gate. Yeah. I passed into like engineering calculus too. I'm taking physics or chemistry, like some very real deal classes. So there's no legging in Mm -hmm. to the pool on this. So I'm also like I've social is a big thing for me. So I'm I'm out there, I'm partying, I'm meeting a lot of people, I'm having a blast, and I'm not dedicating to the schoolwork. In Mm -hmm. high school I was smart enough to not have to study for many things and and get by. And in that case, I was in classes that wouldn't allow it. So nothing against like general education for business, but I switched to business for second semester and got all A's, which I needed to do to hold my scholarship. So it was sort of mandatory, but it was hard curriculum. It was me not focusing. It was me doing a lot of partying and, and, you know, being undisciplined. Yeah. But you know what? I, I, that, that comes with the, you know, the, the coming of age story that is college, <laughs> right? Um, you know that I've you know I've had so many friends that have had to you know course correct after a semester or two of you know too much partying or too much play and not enough work. 
Um, yeah. you know, I was the opposite. I was, I was so ingrained in the work that I needed to loosen up a little bit and get into a little bit more of a social life after my first semester. Um, and I ease into it and it was good. Uh, it was, it was fun to get into the club track scene and, and, uh, you know, some other social, you know, social things as well. Um, you know, go out and party and, you know, drinking as well. So, um, yeah. But um, I'm curious. So you, you you get through college, you know, you get your finance degree, um, and like, what was kind of the the, the start to your career uh, from that point? Yeah, really interesting. So I graduated college in 2001, which means that the the tech bubble had just burst. So I'm in finance, and the summer before my senior year is 2000, summer of 2000, and I interned for Merrill Lynch, and I got a job offer to work for Merrill Lynch. So I go into my senior year, have a job offer. It's paying like 80 grand a year, which at the right. time, a lot of people were getting out of college. Um, and so I'm, I'm set. I don't have to I don't have to do anything else. Um, when the tuck bubble burst, which was in the middle of my senior year, all those jobs got rescinded. So me and all my friends, their job, our jobs got rescinded. So oh, now you're entering the workplace, not having any done any work to um, be recruited or to get a job at a right. horrible job market, especially in finance, but just in general is a horrible job market. So then I go like five months without a job after graduating when, when in my mind I have a great job paying a high salary and ultimately ended up taking like an internal sales job at a mutual fund company um, for 27000 a year. And oh, wow. it's nothing to do with like who makes what out of college. But I remember my friends who are a year older than me all getting 60, 70, $80,000 a year jobs um, in finance and accounting and things like that because it was at the height of the tech bubble. Right. And then, and then, you know, it level set. That was high probably at the time in 2000 for a starting salary out of college. And so then I, I think I'm all set and I ended up making a third of what I thought I was going to make or, you know, thereabouts, but also went five months without having a job, which was incredibly humbling. Absolutely. I mean, look, anytime, you know, you go through unemployment, that is um, an incredibly humbling experience. Um, you know, I, I went through, um, you know, that last year uh, for, you know, several months throughout the year. And just, you know, it was it was, you know, a different you know job market for that, you know, for different reasons. But it wasn't a strong job market necessarily either. Uh, it was it was weird. <laughs> but um, it's not fun. It's not fun. It, it's definitely something to make you check yourself that like. Absolutely. Um, that you have to stay with it and you have to take the good with the bad. It's all these cliches, but it's, it, it'll pound your ego in, a, in probably a really productive way. But during the time, just like anything else that hits your ego, it's not fun while you go through it. No, it's not because, you know, you, you have that belief in yourself as a as a professional and, you know, that you're good at what you do and you have to keep that belief. But there are those thoughts that we talked about earlier that creep in, you know, that doubt that says, you know, am I am I really good at what I do? Because, you know, if I was, wouldn't I have a job by now? Yeah. <laughs> I remember commenting yeah. that voice uh, quite often <laughs> throughout my totally. job search. But, totally. you know, it's just all about, um, you know, opportunity and relationships and, you know, just keeping, you know, kind of pounding the pavement, so to speak, um, you know, keep keep submitting applications and things like that. That. But um, so you got your internal internal sales at a mutual fund, correct? It was really customer service. I mean, right. it, they, they framed it as internal sales, but I'm customers. Yeah. I'm answering calls from um, older people on the AARP side. Right. And they're basically calling and asking for their dividend checks. That's what I did. Right. Right. And, and so I currently I know that you are a CRO. So take me from, you know, kind of like this early career. Right. And and, you know, that that, you know, uh, first job that you're getting and walk me through the journey. I know that you started your own business. I know that you're a CRO now. I really want to understand like, you know, that 
take me through a little bit of your career trajectory and like give me that story within your business life. Yeah, so I started in finance at that customer support job. Um, I then had the opportunity to, uh, I left and went and sold copiers. Mm-hmm. So I'm making 27000 There's no commissions or upside or anything. And a friend of mine is selling copiers and he's doing really well. And he lives in the suburb we grew up in. I live in the city. He calls me and he's like, hey, my company's looking for someone to handle the city selling copiers. Yeah. I had no idea. I now know a lot of people who go on to do pharmaceutical sales um, and other higher, you know, dental sales, medical sales, they start in copiers. Copier sales is like a breeding ground or a building ground for a lot of future sales. Now, now software, medical device, so yeah. on and so forth. Yeah. It's it's very, very cutthroat. I mean, you're selling a commodity, you're selling a copier, right? Yeah. But copier, yeah. Copiers can, you know, I now know $100,000, $60,000, you can sell big copiers. But anyway, so I go, I sell copiers for three years literally just going into skyscrapers in Chicago and working the floors, cold calling, right? Knocking on doors, getting business cards, coming home, calling, trying to drum up business. And I did very well. And and, and looking back now, awesome experience. Talk about breaking ego, learning how to sell, learning how to um, not take yourself too seriously, understanding that you're going to hear no more than you're ever going to hear yes. Awesome, awesome experience. So I take that then and eventually get a job in... um, uh, mutual fund sales called wholesaling and finance is um, if you know what financial advisors have clients who give them money and the financial yep. advisors chooses which investments to put their dollars in. Yep. That's retail, right? That's financial advisor. Financial services retail is yep. financial advisor to the client. There's a wholesale end behind that where all of the different mutual fund companies and ETF companies, all the financial instruments that financial advisors could put their clients money in, they have representatives that are selling to the financial advisors, Mm. right? So that's what I did. They have internal wholesalers and external wholesalers, internal supports the external wholesaler, makes less money, then you graduate to become the external wholesaler. So Mm. I give that context because I spent uh, two years as an internal wholesaler, and then eventually made it into being an external wholesaler. I didn't realize there was that many layers to it, to be completely honest with you. Like I know, I know the, you know, the retail side of things, which is, you know, a financial advisor, right? I work with one, yeah. you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I know, you know, my folks work with one, or I know most people do. Um, but uh, I didn't know there was so many layers to it. Um, really quickly to, to go off on a quick tangent, what is your like view or like perspective on like, you know, on building wealth. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I had a financial advisor on this show and just, just because you have some background in it, I'm really curious as to what your, um, you know, what your uh, kind of principles or philosophy there is. Yeah, well, I mean, one, in terms of financial advisor, it's interesting because at the time, I'm um, as close to the financial markets as, as you could be without being a financial advisor. Right. But I would still have a financial advisor because I talked to a lot of people who have incredible amounts of wealth who just for whatever reason, don't believe in the model. Like I'm going to pay this guy some percent of my assets for him to do what, right? Um, right. And I can learn it from my neighbor or, or, or my yeah. uncle or whomever. So I just think it's important to have an expert whose job it is, who keeps their lights on by doing the thing that you don't. Yeah. Um, looking over things, right? So, Absolutely. so that's one. I mean, in terms of general wealth, like I think my goal is um, as – many different income streams as passive as humanly possible that can come into me, right? And that's right. that's 
uh, most income streams, obviously, as you're younger, are going to be directly work for money. And I think as I'm getting older, what I'm what I'm trying to to aim for is more income streams and less work. Awesome, I love that. And you know, it's interesting. I looked a lot into like you know the goal of financial freedom, and I think a lot of people have this. You know, uh, including myself, before I started doing more more research on it. Um, this idea that it has to be this huge windfall of cash, millions of dollars, right? Where, you know, really what, what it comes down to, and um, this is Maurice Philogene's um, uh, definition of it. I just had, he's building a personal brand on on um, LinkedIn, and he is a kind of a real estate investor. And his definition of it is literally just more passive income than what your expenses are, right? He goes, yeah. that is literally financial freedom, right? You know, it doesn't need to be millions or tens of thousands of dollars. It just needs to be thousands, right? Depending upon, I guess, what your expenses are. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, it, it, you know, it leads into like, so you mentioned I started a business. Um, I worked on Wall Street during the financial crisis of 2008, which is an also incredibly interesting story. But after that, I started a business and that business went on to be acquired for a large sum of money. I did not participate in that. There's a large story behind that, happy to share or not. But point being when I'm asked now, like um, I that could have been a, a tremendous financial windfall for me. My co-founder ended up with $27 million, right? That, wow. that I didn't get. But to do it all over again, that's eight years that it took to get that. To do it all over again, I would recommend, especially talking to a lot of entrepreneurs, I work with them. I, um, you know, A lot of the people that follow me on LinkedIn are entrepreneurs. It's sort of like, rather than take 10 years to get five or $10 million, how can you get $500,000 in a lump sum? quickly, right. you know, quicker or, you know, whatever that number is, it's not about how much you should, can and should make. But I just think all of us start businesses or go into something with the dream of a big check, right? Even if that's going to take you 15 years to get it rather than right. like the when they say the first million is the hardest, regardless of how much money it is, what they're saying is that first lump sum is the hardest because it make, becomes much easier to create passive income streams when you have money to create those passive income streams. Right. So all that's to say, like to do it over again, I would have said, what's the fastest path towards $500,000? Can we make 500,000 on that business um, in a year? And right. if so, wouldn't that have been a lot better over time than waiting eight years yeah. for, for a, a much larger check? You know? Absolutely. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I want to really quickly touch on you know that piece of advice, which is, you know, Focus on, you know, potentially what that more attainable goal is first, because that will give you the more optionality because of the of the yeah. wealth you've created to be able to then go and get that bigger goal. Right. Um, I'm a huge fan, whether it's money or other. Right. Um, you know, really setting like, you know, that that year long or that 10 year, what, however long, long term goal that is. And then breaking it down into smaller, manageable milestones that you can achieve through habits that you build or just, you know, systems that you create that are repeatable and sustainable because, I think those are the keys to, you know, repeatable and sustainable to actually creating, you know, that compound growth and that success. And that could be within money or just, you know, within growing a podcast like I'm trying to do now or whatever that might be. Um, so I think it's a really good, um, you know, metric and system that you've just provided everybody with. It's momentum. I always say momentum is the most powerful um, force in the universe. I really believe yeah. that because what you just hit on is you're building momentum. You started this podcast by taking action, which is great. And you're going to get through the period of time where you're doing a lot of work and you're not feeling like there's a lot of 
comeback from that. There's not a re- lot of reward. Yep. Same with me. I start a LinkedIn audience and you go through the five months where no one's listening and no one cares, right? But if you stick with it, if you're willing to put in more time and be consistent and do it over time, release surrender yourself from the outcome of what could come from that and just keep doing the work and if you if you take that into anything in life it's super cliche but cliches are cliches for a reason if you just keep doing the work showing up and doing stuff consistently and you don't care what the outcome is going to be you'll end up with better outcomes than you could have possibly imagined absolutely and i think consistency is a skill that is lost on a lot of people including myself i'm trying to be consistent with releasing one episode of this podcast per week. And sure, there's going to be more things that I'm building into that system, right? But it's been 10 weeks and it's been 10 podcast episodes. And so week 11 is going to come and it's going to be episode 11 and it's going to continue so on and so forth. Maybe 25 episodes in, I throw in an extra one in there. But I think very much like your your um, LinkedIn audience, right? I, I wrote a post where I think it was you were six months in and you said that I just, I just showed up every single day and I didn't see any results for three or four months or something like that. And, um, and then it was, you know, almost like a slow waterfall. You started to see the, the tangible results. And I think it's, um, there's an entrepreneur named Jesse Itzler and he has this quote, he goes, most people get to like, and I'm obviously going to butcher it, but, um, my paraphrase is that you get through about 95%, uh, most people get to 95% mark and then they stop where, the benefits that you reap are within that last 5% that you, you need to get across that finish line, you know, even though you don't know where the finish line is to be able to, um, you know, kind of reap those benefits. Um, so I yeah. think very much in line with what you were just saying. Um, 100%. I really want to touch on your, your personal brand on LinkedIn because um, LinkedIn's like my favorite social media platform. I go on it more than Instagram and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, I'm curious uh, about the company though that you started. What was it, and um, maybe sort of walk through like you know how it went from you know your journey in it, right? How you went from co-founder to then taking a step back uh, from it and not being able to experience that that windfall because it's actually the the the, the opposite of what you know the, the the common entrepreneur success story now is days is you found a company yeah. you stick with it for a long time and you you know you reap the benefit right um but your story is kind of you know uh, uh opposite to that so i'm really curious to hear what that journey was like yeah so i'm in finance i'm working for merrill lynch by that point i'm doing very well financially making more than i ever thought i would have i have no kids i have a wife um, we hadn't had kids yet and a friend of mine from college comes to me and says i want to start this uh, ready to eat meal delivery company. It was called Factor 75. His idea, he had done a lot of the legwork behind it. He was looking for a co-founder. So I'm living in Dallas and I fly back to Chicago. My wife thinks to just talk with an old buddy about this random idea. I fly back and I'm like, I want to start this thing with him. I want to move back to Chicago so that we can be together. And she's at the time like six months pregnant, five months pregnant. Wow. So, and I'm like, I, we should get there before you give birth because right. it's going to be really hard, be a lot harder after you give birth. So she was awesome. And we fast tracked that we end up moving. She's eight months pregnant. We, we moved from Dallas to Chicago and start this business, but we have no idea what we're doing. It's not as if I was a marketer. I had no experience in marketing at the time. Right. And he was a food operator. So we had two major functions handled. Right. No matter what, if you're going to start a business, you're going to be over your skis in a lot of different functions. You're going to make a ton of decisions on something you have no clue about. But we brought no function, no expertise into that business. And it showed. So we struggled big time. We self-funded a large portion of that business. 
So I go from making, you know, mid to high six figures a year to having no money, empty 401k. So did he. So both of us basically went all in on that and burned the ships and therefore it turned into an incredibly stressful time. We, my wife and I had two kids in the first 18 months. So we had the first one, like basically when we launched the business, 18 months later, we had our second. So you're dealing with a lot of, I was dealing with a lot of life situations that are new, right? I, I say there was very few places in my life at the time where I knew what I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's like the first father. day of a new job, every single day, new father, which means you're, you're, you're a father for the first time, then you're a father of two for the first time. Your relationship with your wife changes in big time once you have kids. It's a very different relationship. You're working up a learning curve there and starting a business. On yeah. top of that financial stress, I go from never thinking I was going to have to worry about money ever again to we have no money. Yeah. And so it was a really, really hard time just on all on all fronts. It, it affected me mentally, emotionally. I was uh, I got to some dark places for sure. Yeah, absolutely. How did you I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but how, how did you kind of come out of that dark place? I can't even imagine, you know, facing all of those new challenges kind of converging at once in, in one period of time. Good friend of mine likes to say, don't shake too many pillars in your life at once, right? You know, yeah. if you if you have a job pillar, if you have a relationships pillar, and if you have a you know sort of living space, like geographically pillar, you know, he says, don't don't shake all those at once. It looks like you kind of just you know shook all of them, and the roof almost kind of came down and in. Um, it totally did. It how, totally did. How did you how did you come out of um, that dark place, as you said? A lot of, you know, the, the end of it is exactly why I didn't participate. I left the day to day of the business. But even leading up to that, I think a lot of the things that I'm, I'm a deep believer in personal development and personal yep. growth. And you can read those things and you can do those things without needing them. And you can sort of come in and out of your um, consistency level on how often you're doing these things. I think all of us know without touching a book, the things we could do. Uh, mentally, emotionally, to keep ourselves healthy physically. Yep. When you need to do them, is what came down for me, right? Like I had to do those things. I was um, out of shape physically, mentally, and emotionally, and I had to do the gratitude practice, the meditation, the journaling, um, all of the things every single day just to keep my head above water because um, it did. It got to a place where just um, someone like me who always have walked around with a lot of confidence. Uh, things came relatively easily for me all through life. Then it wasn't. And I let it take, I let it consume me, you know, cause you know, as well as I do, the story you're telling yourself about any situation is the story that's true until yeah. you change the story. So I let myself wallow in that for quite some time, feeling like I had failed my family, feeling like I had failed the business, despite the fact that the business had started to do really, really well. Um, so that is the short version of how just recognizing the fact that, holy shit, this is not good. Like, yeah. you know, where I'm sitting right now is not a good situation. I have to put the work in and this isn't going to fix itself. Ultimately, I left the business. We turned the business around. We were able to then raise a bunch of capital and we got the business going. And I'm incredibly grateful and proud of what we did. But we're four and a half years in and I'm still in a deep hole financially and I'm getting better emotionally. Uh, and physically, and uh, but the stress of that was really, really high. So I, I go to my wife at one point. I'm like, hey, I'm thinking about maybe leaving. 
the day to day and she starts bawling. She basically was like, you know, I've never cared about the money. I've never cared about anything except the man I married had a twinkle in his eye and an energy for life. And you are not that person. And so that was the first, she had never said anything up until that point. And that to me was like, I have to change. This has got to stop. Right. Yeah. It's got to stop. So I, I left the day to day. I was in deep financial debt. I was hoping to sell some of my equity and then hold on to some for the upside. It didn't turn out that way. I was basically given an all or nothing proposition from one of our investors. Like, I'll take all your shares for this money or nothing. And I took it and I did what was right. What I thought was right for me at the time, I would do it again. But then fast forward four years and it was acquired for almost $300 million. And so I I didn't get a dollar, you know, and and I don't I don't say any of that for anyone to feel sorry for me. I've come to terms with it and come to peace with it. There's so many good things that have come from that experience. But that like me leaving is is ultimately I think what what needed to happen in order for me not to go down. I don't know where I'd be had I stayed if I'm being honest. Yes, absolutely. No, I mean, look, the the thing that pops into my head as you say that is this dynamic between you know what you know what what is wealth? What, you know, how do you define it? Right? How do you define yeah. success? And how do you define wealth? And I think clearly, you know, your definition of that. Um, has to stem somewhere around your your personal you know wellness, right? Because you said you weren't you know you weren't feeling well, you weren't feeling like the person that you used to be at that point in the business. And even if you had stayed, all the money in the world wouldn't have fixed potentially the the damage that might have been or occurred if you had stayed those extra three years. Um, so I you know I think you know not that you need my approval, but I think you made a great choice. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's you know the. Uh, Going through, I'm super proud of what we built. I'm very happy for everyone that ended up making um, a lot of money. A lot of people invested in me and in my my co-founder, um, and I'm incredibly grateful. Like, listen, at the end of the day, this comes with, like I said before, the story you're telling yourself is the story that's true. I could choose to look back at that and view it as something like what might have been or what's the bad of that, or I could look at it and say, I, from the ground up, having no experience, was part of a team that built a business that was that went on to be acquired for almost $300 million. And regardless of what I took home because of that, I was there and that doesn't happen without me. So I'm very proud of what we built. I'm very thankful for the people that invested in us. And I know that I'm a much more dangerous business person and human being because I went through that experience, right? Because I know how to build and operate a business that will pay me for the rest of my life if money was my only goal. But it also is just forced me to go through the darkest time in my life, which I had never had to deal with before. And now I have, and I'm better for it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the cliche uh, term, but it's true is that, you know, what doesn't kill you will make you stronger. And I mean, that, you know, really holds true in that, in that story for you. And I think within that story is also a very common, um, you know, theme that, you know, people um, oftentimes I think go through, you know, something and feel as though they missed out on an opportunity. And I think if they fixate on that, they lose focus on all the opportunities that could potentially be sitting in front of them. Right. Um, what's your advice to someone who might be holding on to something that they feel as though if I had only done this or if I'd only done that, um, then I would have been successful or maybe things would have turned out differently. Um, you know, how do you, you know, what's the advice that you give um, someone that might be going through that? Yeah, that you can't live in the past. I mean, what's the what's the point? Of, of how is it serving you, I guess, living in the past? I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from looking backwards in time and trying to carry those lessons forward. 
but to be fixated on a particular event from the past and what could have been because of that isn't serving you. Like there's no upside to that. So it's easy to say there's no upside to that, but, it, but there really isn't, you know, and, um, I forget, I forget that is it James Belushi movie. Uh, he's a baseball player. He's like a eight year old kid. And you know, he, he strikes out in the championship game instead of hitting a home run. Mr. Yep. Destiny, I think is the name of it. But yeah, like, I think about that all the time, even though I can't remember the name of the movie, but like he, he is able to go back in time and change the one event that in his mind would have changed the rest of his life and made it everything he hoped his life would be right where he has money and he has this beautiful wife and different life than he has. And ultimately as movies go, he ends up realizing that everything he wanted was exactly where, where his old life was. And I just, you know, our life doesn't, isn't a fairy tale like that, but the premise holds true is um, I believe you have to believe that you are exactly where you're supposed to be in life. Because if you believe anything other than that, then you're setting yourself up for being unhappy. So that's not like bury your head in the ground and don't pay attention to anything bad or put a silver lining on everything. I think you have to address things in your life that aren't great and, and recognize them and be honest with yourself about them. But you have to, the, the more you can believe you literally are exactly where you're supposed to be, the happier you're going to be. And if, if the game we're playing here is a game of trying to find happiness, then you're going directly against that by believing you should be somewhere other than where you are. I love that because it, it hits on a lot of things that, um, you know, it hits on being present, right? And in the moment, um, but at the same time, not dismissing the lessons that you could potentially learn from your 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 losses, your failures, your, you know, your past. Um, but the ultimate, it, it's, it really kind of calls on people to be, you know, anchored and present in the moment and to feel secure in that presence. Um, because at the end of the day, like you said, if you're not there, then where are you? Because that's yeah. the only, you know, the only place that you can be is where your two feet are. So I really appreciate that, that, uh, that lesson. So, you know, you, you leave the business, um, you know, you, you sell your shares. Um, where do you go from there on this rebuilding process? Right. It sounds like, you know, you'd already started to rebuild some of the foundation of who you were and potentially even grow past that person of who you were, um, you know, by the time that you left the business, but you know, from a, from a financial and a personal growth standpoint, where do you go, um, from there to get to where you are now? Um, you know, in the, in this current chapter as a CRO, um, you know, and helping, uh, other, other entrepreneurs and other businesses build their, their product digitally. Yeah. Um, for one, a really interesting story. So I'd had a conversation about the time I was leaving. I had a, a conversation with someone who had sold multiple businesses in the past. Um, and he's like, every time I sell a business, I uh, take a job working for someone else. And, and me, in my head, I'm like, I am had such ignorant thoughts. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't work for other people, right? Which any thought that's so binary is ignorant, just is. Like, if you don't believe there's wiggle room in any thought, that's that, that's ignorant. So I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't work for other people. I got a job offer from someone right after I left. Come help me run, build this agency. That agency now a couple years ago went on to sell for a whole lot of money, mind you. But, and I say, no, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm an entrepreneur. That's what I do. So first of all, I'm mostly broken still at the time. I'm exhausted after four and a half years of the worst four and a half years of my life, the hardest four and a half years of my life. And I don't recognize we had a, a, a food business that's maybe one of the most complex businesses there is, right? You've got supply chain that's perishable twice. You have to order ingredients and you have to cook the food, then you have to send the food. It's just really complex business. 
So then I say, I'm going to go into a consulting business, which is easy. This will be easy. And I don't, I don't um, give credit to how starting any business is hard, no matter what the business is. And I wasn't in a position to really uh, be the salesperson I needed to be about myself in order to get a consulting business off the ground. So a brilliant piece of advice of like, why, why do you feel like just because you've started a business that every business from here going forward is something you need to start? You know, the hardest part of any business is that zero to one to find product market fit to find your yep. customers. So why would I be opposed to teaming up with a company that's already established and has product market fit? And now the job that I do, which is help them grow their sales becomes much, much easier. Yeah. You know, except for ego. Ego is the only thing that prevents you from saying, yeah, that's a good idea. So long story short, I spent three years consulting uh, after that, which which after the first six months went very, very well. For that first six months, I just was not in a mental state to really build a business that revolved around me. Yeah. So in hindsight, I would have taken a different path. But I did a lot of consulting in the years after that, mostly with consumer brands, mostly helping them with their e-commerce channels and helping them grow online because that's what we did at my old business. That's what I became very good at. And then more recently, finally took the advice of, of that person so many years ago where one of my clients was a baby food company called Serenity Kids. They sell really healthy baby food. Um, they were a consulting client. I went on to a leadership role at that company, helping them grow their e-com channels. And then more recently, a company called Highkey, uh, where I'm the chief digital officer at Highkey. So I help them with all things e-commerce, but it's a healthy snack brand, a low sugar snack brand. We sell cookies and crackers and chocolates. Awesome. And so just viewing it as, hey, I don't have to start my own businesses. I may in the future, I may not, but me being an entrepreneur, A, what does that even mean? There's no identity behind that. Um, but just coming to the realization that like you can do whatever you want. The, the, this career path is long and it's a marathon, not a sprint as is life. So I'm going to come into in a lot of different opportunities, but I had to get rid of the fact that like my identity is tied to being an entrepreneur, which equals I have to start my own businesses because whether I do that or not is irrelevant. I found a couple of great opportunities of companies that were really well established already, have a great product. They need someone with my expertise and I can step in and have a, a little bit easier time than if I was trying to start my own business yeah. and get it off the ground. Absolutely. That is something that I've struggled with within my own identity as well, which is, you know, I was fed, force fed this culture of entrepreneurship on social media once I got out of school because I started paying attention to guys like Gary Vee, etc. And it's not to say anything bad about those guys. It was just my own um, interpretation and internalism yeah. of it was that I felt that I needed to become an entrepreneur. And I've never been yeah. an entrepreneur, right? But I've always been entrepreneurial. That's always been kind of like in my bones, right? You know, and that's how I've operated within, um, you know, all the positions that I've ever had. Um, but I always felt that I had to do something to build up to start my own business, which I've realized most recently is not the case. Like you can yeah. be entrepreneurial within a business and help a business grow, right? Why struggle to find that product market fit? Unless it's something that you're so passionate about about or that you really want to build because you have, feel that there's a need for it, then I understand that. Maybe going down that path eventually at some point. But why not take that company that you already have that's established and then just help it blow it through the roof? I really identify with that because it's a realization that I've come to in the last you know, um, couple of years myself. Yeah, I think three things from that. One, to your point, you can be entrepreneurial without being an entrepreneur, right? It's, it's a mindset on how you attack things. Yep. Two, you can start a business without it being a life-changing idea. 
so many people come to me because they know that I've started a business. So I'm a natural sounding board for like, hey, what do you think? And it's always like this idea that could be worth billions of dollars. <laughs> when like you can start a consulting business on the side. I'm not saying you have to either, right? You don't have to start a business, but right. the path towards business doesn't have to be what I did, which is like empty your 401k, burn the ships and hope it's this big thing. It can be small. You could do it on the side. You could just start consulting, doing the same thing that you do for your regular job. Yep. And the path tends to reveal itself. So that's that's the second big takeaway is like it, it doesn't have to be this big, massive idea. And then the third thing is, to your point, you don't have to do any of those things. Yep. Right? It's like it's no one talks about how incredibly challenging it is to start your own business and how high the suicide rates are for entrepreneurs. Like it is not a glorious path, despite what you see on social media. So it's it's not for everybody. And, and it. There's also, you're no better for having started a business than someone who's never started a business that has zero to do with, you know, like with, with the game of life and where you stack up, like you are in control of how you judge yourself. And, um, having started a business doesn't make you better or worse than anybody else. Absolutely. Um, you've built an incredible personal brand on LinkedIn and, um, you know, it's, it's skyrocketed in what is only, you know, short, I think six to six to seven months. Um, why did you start building a personal brand, you know, at all? And what made you find a home on LinkedIn? And to someone who is looking to build something similar to that, um, you know, I'm looking to do it myself. I know there are probably other people that are looking to build a brand in general. Um, what's, what's your advice? So how did you get started on that and why? And, and, and what's your advice to, to build that brand? I mean, I'm in marketing, so I know that attention is currency. And I'd always had it in the back of my head that I should have started this a long time ago. I just yeah. know attention's currency. I'm not trying to be famous. I just know that if you have attention, you are in, more in control of your fate than if you don't. And so I always a little bit hard on myself, like, why have I not gotten started? So finally, in January of last year, 2021, I picked LinkedIn because it's got a lot less riffraff than a lot of the other platforms. And it's a little bit more business friendly. And so I said, to your point, I'm just... I'm just going to post for six months straight and I'm not going to care who listens. Why? To be a little bit more detailed about rather than just attention as currency is, I want to be in control of my future and my fate. And I know that my ability to do that comes down to the number of people I know, the number of people who know, like, and trust me. Um, yeah. Because opportunities come your way when that happens. You can figure out how to monetize that later, but I can promise you if you do it, you will monetize it along the way. The number of opportunities that have come my way just in the year plus that I've been posting is 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 I don't want to be dramatic about it, but it's way more than I would have ever imagined. Right. So January of last year, I start. We're in April now and I just posted every single day and I've continued to do that for 16 months. And the number of relationships I met you there, I've met hundreds of other people who I now consider to be people that I know. I've had opportunities come my way. I've had job offers come my way. I've had. Um, really cool relationships. I mean, just anything that you can imagine, even let's just say you're never going to try to make money with any of those things. I know that if I have an audience who knows that I know what I'm talking about, I will be able to make money off that at some point in the future. So I'm not, less worried about that. I'm more worried about adding value to the world. If I do that for long enough, the moment that I ask for something, I'm going to get it because I've put so much goodwill out to the universe that that will come back. But even short of that, so much goodwill has come back my way by just meeting great humans and way more good has come from it than bad. 
it's very clear that you're building it for the right reasons. Um, and thank you for sharing that because I know a lot of people, um, you know, ask me all the time because I'm in this marketing world of how to build a personal brand. And I have these questions myself. I kick myself for not having started this journey, this podcast, etc., a long time ago as well. Um, yeah. uh, two more questions. I know we're coming up on time. Super tactical. Um, for someone who wants to get started building a personal brand on LinkedIn, um, what is like the first one or two steps that they could take? Uh, and, and, you know, just like how, how do you write a post and how do you do it consistently? Yeah, I wouldn't even get caught up with that. It's post every single day. Like you will find your voice. You will come up with frameworks. But I think people get caught up in that first. And like uh, what's the best type of post? What's the best headline to write? Literally stop. Take the first step and just get out of your own way and just start writing. Yeah. You know, if you it, your day to day interactions, like my day to day interactions as the head of an e-commerce for a for a snack brand are incredibly relevant to everybody that's a marketer inside of another business and founders for snack brands and founders for businesses. So I just started writing. I just use it as my diary. So just commit to writing every single day and posting no matter what it is. It doesn't have to be this profound thing that you're posting. Just publish every single day. That would be the first step. Don't pick your head up from that and try to optimize it until there's something to optimize. You'll learn a lot along the way, but if, you, if you're trying to start saying, oh, these are the 10 things I have to do in every single post, you'll never post. Versus just, I'm just gonna publish every day for three months. Take 90 days, publish every day, pick your head up in 90 days and be like, what's the next 90 days look like from here? Love that. Last question, what is your definition of growth? Growth is evolution. I mean, if I can become a little bit better um, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, every single day, that is growth. Like literally growth, a fully evolved man is what I want to be. And that includes physical, mental, emotional, like all the big ones. Um, success in business is one, one of equally important spokes that have to be. Um, so none are more important than the other. And so I think fully evolved across all of those is to the extent that I can is what growth means to me. That's a wonderful definition. Ryan, thank you for being so transparent and authentic uh, in this conversation today. Um, it's been truly one of my favorites and I'm looking forward to getting to, to know you better and having you on again, hopefully soon in the future. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks for having awesome. me, bud. Thanks, Ryan. Talk soon. All right. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thank you so incredibly much for listening to today's episode. It means the world to me, and I'm so grateful for any member of this audience. If you found today's episode valuable, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is that you're listening to this show. Subscribe to the show, rate us five stars, and drop us a review if you can. It would mean the world to me. Remember, you are valuable, you are worthy, and you are already enough. Now let's go out there and grow together.